Super dope episode today. I'm joined with Sultana Tafadar of Hope I Pronounced Your Surname Correctly. You have. Okay, brilliant. So my first question is to you. Mm-hmm. Are you as scary and or as feared as I've heard you are? No. <laughs> that's, very, that's a very straight answer. <laughs> but I want to be. The fact that you're asking this question makes me want to be scary and feared. Why have I heard that you're feared or scared? What, what? You have quite a formidable track record. I don't know. I, I, someone, do as someone said, I'm not going to say who told me, but I've heard that you kick ass when it comes to the courts. I do okay. Are you just being humble now? Is that I, what it I is? am, I am. I've told I'm not very humble, so I'm trying to inject a little bit no, of humility. No, but I just... I totally know, I kick ass. <laughs> Thank you. We have to move away from, from imposter okay. syndrome. Imposter syndrome. <laughs> I know. I always talk about this, and here I am. No, it was humility. I have to inject a little bit of humility. Okay, just, just a little bit. the foundation. Just... Yeah, first impressions matter. So if people think I'm humble <laughs> to start off with, then I can later on say as many outrageous things as possible, but people will think I'm still very humble. Exactly. Well, I am honoured to have you on, and I know I've read your bio, I've read some of the cases, you have a formidable track record, and you are a dope role model, if I'm honest with you. But I want to ask, so you, there you are, a barrister, he wears hijab, how have you kept your identity so strong in the line of work that you do? Good question. I think a lot of times people think you have to compromise. You know, you can't be one and sort of you can't be all of those things and exist within the legal profession. And I don't think that's necessarily true. You can still, I mean, I, I, for example, just to give some examples, I don't go to bars, pubs. I don't have anything to do with alcohol. Um, And that's one of the main ways people tend to socialize at the bar. And that's one of the main ways of also getting to work at the bar. So if you're, you know, is taking your solicitors out and schmoozing them in bars and pubs or taking your clerks out, clerks are people who work in chambers, so barristers' offices, and they, they get the work in from the solicitors and then they sort of select who they give it to. And so if you're not mm-hmm. schmoozing the clerks, then of course you're not going to be on top of the list. So it's not supposed to necessarily work in that way, but in reality it does. And so, I mean, I, I don't do that. So I have my own ways of, you know, I work around it. I have my own ways of dealing with it. And actually you can end up being more effective. And so, I mean, okay. to, to give an example, I mean, during Christmas, for example, at my old chambers, yes. everybody would buy like a bottle of champagne or a case of champagne to the clerks um, to celebrate Christmas. And they would just have stacks of this stuff in the corner of their, in their, of their room. And I would just yeah. go out and get them some kind of a very nice sort of chocolate cake and leave it in the room for, for all of them to have. And in fact, because everybody buys the same thing, it just gets lost and they don't remember it. But they remember the cake that I bought and how much they enjoyed it. And so I do the same with solicitors rather than giving them, you know, alcohol for Christmas yes. or any occasion. I, I, I do the whole cake thing. And in fact, I also drop by the solicitor's office to give it to the hand, deliver it. And again, it's an opportunity for you to sit and talk to them in a bit more of a relaxed environment. And again, that works because they remember you. So you, being different isn't a disadvantage. It can be total. I mean, it can be completely used to, to your advantage. You know, you're standing out. So are you, totally. But are you saying categorically that there's no advantage or categorically that you, in any circumstances that you'd have to sell out, as it were? I don't think so. I can think of lots of no, examples. Notwithstanding all that we know about the system in the UK and its disadvantages to ethnic minorities. Yeah, not really, no. I mean, I, like, much like Omran, I'm a criminal 
defense barrister. And so I guess my position, not that you're selling out if you're prosecuting, I hasten to add, for how it calls me. But as a, as a defense lawyer, I mean, we all go into it for, for pretty much the same reasons. You, Why did you go into it? Okay, so I see myself, I'm female Muslim from a minority background. And I think, yes. you know, when you go through life, you have lots of experiences that relate to race, gender and, and religion, discriminatory yeah. behavior. And so I think most of us tend to develop a really strong sense of justice, a strong sense of fair play. And so we all pretty much when we go into the law, we have these ideas of wanting to fix things, of wanting to, wanting to make sure that we're part of a system or you know, whether it is for that particular moment, it may be just for that particular moment, but we're doing something to advance the notions, these concepts of justice and fair play. And so that's what I see myself doing as a defense barrister, because a lot of the okay. time the state has overwhelming power and resources to completely crush somebody. If they set out to destroy somebody, they can completely destroy somebody. And so I see my role as a barrister as acting as a buffer between the state and the person's individual rights. The blow, you ease the blow that, that your client feels or the defendant feels. You do what you can to get their voice heard because, you know, your, okay. your, your client may not be articulate or intelligent. And frankly, I mean, if you're not a doctor, you can't, you know, give a prescription. You know, likewise, if, you don't, if you're not well versed with the law, you can't really go into court and understand it and maneuver around it as a lay person. So you do need a barrister and we're, we're experienced yeah. in that. We have the skills. And, and so that's what we do. We give our clients a voice and we, we try okay, so and ensure fairness. We try and ensure fairness, fair play and all of those things. So that's why you went into the law, to, uh, law um, into the legal profession. That's why. I mean, before I came to the legal profession, before I started working as a barrister, I used to work for lots of different non-governmental organisations, and okay. you know, we did lots of like research, we did lots of campaign work, but ultimately, I thought, you know, unless I get into the courtroom, you know, the law can be a tool for change, and I, unless I get in there, I don't know how much change I'm personally affecting. I'm part of a machinery, but I want to see more concrete results. I want to see immediate results. It's, it's, I guess it's a sense of it, okay. importance. Yeah. Okay, well then, back to my question, which I, um, which you were answering to our change, I kind of went off track. The question of knowing that the system disadvantages ethnic minorities, particularly yeah. uh, in the UK and in, across sectors, across mm -hmm. institutions, are you absolutely saying 100% there's no advantage at all to selling out or no, and I, again, I think I feel like I'm saying saying now because that's how I perceive it. They might perceive it. As Why do you just see, me and my family? Yeah, yeah. Why do you see my role as selling out? No, I don't think you're all selling out. Okay. I'm saying the, the archetype of that person who is an ethnic minority who acts as a gatekeeper or acts as somebody who denies the experiences of the community in which they in which they come from, but I, in I, order to I, get a position. No, the position is is there to open the doors and to represent those from my community. You know, my specialism for the last seven years has been counterterrorism and national security work. And I, yeah. I defend in those cases. So I'm not acting for the state. I act for the defendant. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Of course. No, I'm not saying I'm not saying you sell out. I'm saying why I'm saying is there I'm basically saying those that do so in your experience of like you being amongst in the legal sector, being someone who's quite high up or someone who's quite respected. Do you feel like you that that's that's applicable across the board to people, or is it only a few people can have can keep their integrity in the legal profession? Hmm. You have prosecutors and you have defence lawyers, 
and yeah. you know everybody has a role to play within the system and yeah. as long as they're doing the best they can and for example if a prosecutor is fair then you can't really say they're selling out it's having a prosecutor okay. that's fair that's the most important part but then you have prosecutors who are overzealous and they want to you know, prosecute this person against all odds, you know, it's they become so involved in it. And everybody has to do their job properly. But some just perhaps maybe take it really far. But then again, yeah, yeah of yeah. course. Yeah, right. let's are there several archetypes. Let's say the police, for example, it's no surprise. If you were to ask many black boys, their experience with particular black police officers, yeah. it's always much worse than many times. Because you, there's almost this thing of like, I have to prove myself to my colleagues in that profession, yeah. that black police officers have to prove themselves. They're not being too nice to people who look like them. Yeah. So I'm saying that is, it, is the system designed in a way that if you have, but you, I mean, you're, what you're saying from what I'm gathering is that it's not designed in a way. It is actually, it does allow for people to still be themselves and maintain who they are within the system. Is that what you're saying? I think so. I mean, it depends what people are. I mean, some come into it because they want to assist others. They have these sort of human rights perspective. Others come in because it's just a profession. It's just another job to do. And, they, you know, it doesn't okay. matter who they represent. The politics doesn't matter. They're, okay. they're, they can prosecute. They can defend. They can do any of it and all of it. And they can argue and fight just as hard whichever side they're on. And there are, there are some that don't really fight hard whichever side they're on. You know, you have prosecutors okay. who fight really hard and don't. And you have defense lawyers that fight really hard and those that don't and so it's it depends on the reason somebody came in I mean it's very difficult to mm. um, yeah it's, it's sort of on a case-by-case basis and I guess the term sellout is quite subjective I mean I may perceive somebody let's say certain politicians for example who are from our community but they're not really representing yes. us and that may be deemed a sellout but on the other hand, there are those who may be in power and are doing things to advance the communities. But in the legal system, we have something called a cab rank rule. So you can't really necessarily pick and choose your cases. You know, what comes your way, just like a black cab, when you hail it and it stops. Likewise, if you're asked to do a case and you're available, then that's something you have to do. Now, I mean, I've, okay. I've, I've obviously never been asked to prosecute, but technically... A prosecutor can pick up the phone and ask me to prosecute a case. But obviously, okay. I've built up my practice doing defense work. So it's, it's, I understand okay, what you're saying, but it's, it's the, the answer isn't really straightforward given the way the system is. And I may personally think that somebody sold out because you know they, they don't really care about who they're prosecuting and so forth. But others would argue, well, that's just the system. You're just a pawn in the system and you just do what you have to do and the other side does what they have to do and, and you you know, ultimately it's for the jury to decide who wins. You know? And so if all yeah, parties fair don't enough, do their job, yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. And in terms of you uh, doing defence work, a question that I previously asked one of our previous guests, who's our mutual um, colleague or uh -huh. friend, yeah. Amran. Amran, do you have any kind of conflict of like morality when it comes to defending certain cases or when you read their files and maybe if it may have been a violent crime or maybe, been, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure particulars of the cases you've been involved in, yeah. but would you ever find that to be a conflict of morality on your part? I struggle, if I'm completely honest, I struggle with sexual offences. So, and Ooh, okay. yeah, unfortunately, I haven't had to do a vast amount. So, like, as I said, the last seven years, I've been in a particular, doing work of a particular, of a specialist nature. But I have yes. 
done some work and it is something that I really did struggle with because I personally start off from the position of being sympathetic to the woman and uh, to the victim to the complainant mm -hmm. of course and that's just a natural sort of instinctive position I generally hold and so okay. when it comes to defending somebody who's been accused it's something I sort of really struggle with but then ultimately you've kind of got to put that to one side and you know because ultimately our role is to give a voice to those that we represent but Ooh, what, uh, how, how sorry how, we're gonna have to unpack that for me because <laughs> yeah. i'm thinking how, something you just said that your starting position is that one of sympathy to the woman yeah and that but then you just put that to the side and say i have to run a defense and first of all do you still run effective defenses for cases that you feel compromised in yeah okay, so, morally so first of all the starting point is and this is the bit where i sort of have to grapple and I guess reorder things. So on the one hand, I have sympathy for the victim. On the other hand, every defendant has the right to a fair trial. So it's not, I'm not in a position and no lawyer should ever sit there and judge a client. You know, that's not our job. We effectively operate, just like a surgeon, you operate on the body without make passing judgment on them. So you dispense with that. And what you do is you have to clinically look at a case and you will say to a client, these are the strengths in your case and these are the weaknesses in your case. Okay, so you weigh it up for them. You can say, look, it's quite strong, like 90% strong and sort of this, this little bit here is weak. So this is, you give them an assessment, they decide what to do if they want to plead. Sometimes a case, and, and this is why we shouldn't do it, sometimes a case can be on paper, appear strong, but that doesn't mean that the client necessarily did it. It's, it's a question of what evidence has been gathered, how it's been presented. But the the client, your, the lay client, the defendant may have another side of the story. I mean, I, I remember, I mean, this is going back a very long time ago, but yeah. I was instructed on a rape case. And, okay. you know, I, I read the witness statements, the, the victim the witness statements, the complainant statements, and it was yeah. seemed quite harrowing on the face of it. And so I thought, gosh, you know, this doesn't look great. Anyway, let's meet with the client. And so it was two sisters who were making allegations of rape, saying that they were married, their husbands were abroad, their father, who's very elderly, had brought them over, and they had children. Okay. And he was a neighbor who was effectively helping them, you know, to get, you know, housing benefit or whatever it was, whatever they needed, he helped them. And that, you know, whilst doing all of this, he was also raping both of them. And so I met with the client and it was interesting because the account I got from him was, of course, different yeah. to what they were saying. But as a barrister, as you're building a defense case, you've got to look at all the gaps in the case and say, well, what about this? What about this? What about that? And what about this? And to be honest, he had good answers. And in the end, he sought disclosure. So disclosure is where you ask the prosecution to serve some documents on you. And we also okay. obtained other documents. And it actually, in the end, transpired that he was actually in relationships with both of the sisters. And so they'd found oh. out and they would and they had given a really good kind of story. Alibi. Yeah. They they, they effectively backed each other up because they were mad that he was seeing both of them. Oh wow. Yeah. And we had pictures wow. of Is this is yeah. this court or is this Jeremy Kyle? This, this is, is like Jeremy a, Kyle. A I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, and ultimately the prosecution dropped the case because there was so much evidence to the concrete that we managed to unearth which showed that yes. actually it was the case. And actually, and that was very early on, in, early on in my career. And I thought, you know what? This is precisely the reason why we shouldn't pass judgment on any, on any 
client. If they tell me they haven't done it, then that's what we say to the court and we represent that case. It, it, we're not there to dispense judgment. We're not there to say, oh, but you you definitely did it and I can't. I'm having a, you know attack of conscience. I can't represent you. You can't. My next question to that then would be, okay, fair enough. Uh, you can't judge a client. But if they said they haven't done it, but you believe in your heart of hearts that they have, yeah. then what? That's, ir- that's irrelevant. How can you, though? I mean, the example I've just given is one where in my heart I thought, gosh, the, you know, because I have this instant instinctive sympathy for anybody who complains about any kind of sexual abuse. For me, I was I struggled with it. But when I met the client and I, when I spoke to him, it completely transformed the whole thing. So it actually okay. so that's why it's important, because we're there effectively as their representatives. If they say they haven't done it, then that is what you advance in court. If they say okay. they have done it, that's different. Okay, so not what I believe in my heart, because what I felt in my heart was wrong. And so if they tell me, though, they've done it, then what we can do for them as barristers is very different. So I can't go to court. That is? It is very different. So if, for example, Momadou, when you're acting in self-defense after being attacked. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. hypothetically, (laughs) (laughs) When a white racist throws the first blow and you respond. I dodge. I dodge. You dodge. And then you you act in self-defense of yourself and undoubtedly others. If you told me, actually, that's not true, and I threw the first punch, I can't then go into court and concoct a a defense knowing... Okay, yes. If you've already told me. So what I would say to you, Mamadou, if that's the case, you have a few options. You can plead guilty and take your sentence. Or I can continue to represent you, but I can only go so far. So I can't say to the other person that, no, you threw the first blow and Momadou acted in self-defense. I can't do that as a lawyer. It's unethical. And the third thing is you can just sack me and get a fresh new lawyer and don't tell them you did it. (laughs) Okay, good. Uh, This is, um, is that legal advice? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't hold me to it. I'm going to have a disclaimer at the end of all of this. Definitely, I'll put it in the comments as well. Yeah. People don't think we're, we're kind of giving them this as legal advice. It's just, it's just a conversation. I know that a lot of people ask this question: <laughs> How do you represent those that are guilty that you believe are guilty? Belief doesn't matter because you could always be wrong. The evidence in court mm, doesn't. Fair the, enough. The evidence in court isn't necessarily the whole truth. The evidence is a snapshot that the police have managed to gather. And that's it. There are other things that may be inadmissible. There may be other things. So it can't be admitted as evidence in court. There may be other things, for example, that the police haven't managed to gather, which could have shown a shed a different light. And that's why you'd never, you know, you, it's not our role to judge. We act as their, Fair enough. As, as their mouthpiece. It's just a job. It's it's a job, yes. It's the role that we have to play. And we've got to be... It's the role. Fair enough. I don't want, I don't want kind of... Um diminish the role that you play I think it's an important one in terms of in the UK context what's your view on the police I've come across one good police officer <laughs> okay that's good, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Just the one. I think it was in relation to a murder I found that he was very sort of impartial and not that he was determined he was focused but he he didn't break down and cry when you know people were acquitted and and I think that's good oh, okay, okay, people okay. have a role to play and you know you've got to be fair but What's my view of the police? Yes. Do you want to? Of, my view is known. I don't work with them. So maybe you can give me the inside story from my perspective. I think yeah. that it's like maybe 90, 90%, 10. 
90 are terrible. No, maybe like half are terrible. 40 are just there trying, trying to do something and 10 are okay. But even me, that's just me being generous because my experience with the police yeah. on the largely have been quite negative, if I'm honest. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, well, you work with them. Yeah, I, I don't work with them. Oh, no, sorry, don't work with them, you're I, right. I, I don't work with them. I defend. So I'm always... But you interact with them, no? You have interactions with them. But interactions in a sense when they're in the witness box and I question them and I cross-examine them. That's my interaction. Ooh. Yeah. I don't, can I get can I get invited to, your, to watch you in court? <laughs> you're most welcome to come. <laughs> <laughs> it's I cross-examine them. So I don't sort of have any dealings with them at all, other than you know, when if they come to court, they sit behind the prosecutor. They're part of the prosecution team. I don't directly liaise with them. I speak to the prosecutor. If the prosecutor needs something, he gets it from the police. The interaction yeah. I have with the police or security services is when I cross-examine them when they're in the in the witness. Oh well, I, let's do it for our beautiful and amazing listeners. Yeah, I'm a police officer on the witness yeah. box. Who's I'm a police officer in the witness box who has said that I pulled over this group of young black males and the car smelled of weed. Yeah. How are you cross-examining me? Well, I had that, actually. And let me tell you, this is quite a, a funny story. I mean, I had this very early on. I mean, a lot of the cases, when you're a junior barrister, you get a lot of these cases where every black man yeah. is smoking weed and they just happen yeah. to drive past and, and smell it. And so I had one of these cases. And what's really interesting is when you have like about five officers saying the same thing, how do you negate that? Because yes. the jury will say, oh, police officers, they're law enforcement officials. Of course, everything they say is gospel. How do you even yeah. break that into something else how do you find the gaps and so I had yeah. I think it was three or four police officers in this particular case who said exactly that and so the first police officer came in I said and he gave his name and I said is this your statement he said yes I said have you spoken to anybody before drafting your statement no have you discussed the contents of your statement before drafting it no did you sit with anybody when you were drafting it no did you have any contact with anybody whilst you were drafting your statement no. Have you discussed the contents of your statement? Wait, well, I'm not even in the witness box and you're making me sweat. Yeah. I'm not even on trial here and I'm the one that's sweating. <laughs> that's good. And so I, I said, okay, well, let me read your statement. And so I went through it line by line. I said, and this is in front of a jury. And I said, so this is the first line. I read it out. Is this, is this what you have in front of you? Is that your statement? He said, yes. I read second line, third line, fourth line. I read a whole page of a statement. I said, everything that I've read out, is that contained within your statement? He said, yes. I said, are you telepathic? He said, what? I said, do you have the power of telepathy? Do you read minds? He said, I'm sorry, I don't understand. I said, I've just, so let's assume he's PCX. I said, I've yes. just read out PCZ's statement line by line, and you seem to have exactly the same statement word for word. You didn't sit with anybody. You didn't oh discuss it with anybody. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Thank you. It was good fun. I enjoyed it. Because he didn't have an answer. And of course, he had to say he's not telepathic. And then it was fun because then we got PCZ to come in and we did exactly the yeah. same thing. And so you had three or four police officers coming in who, and, you know, we, we did the same sort of thing to them. And so we were quitted in 20 minutes. And it was a snesbrook. Wow. I'm Ron will please to know it was a snesbrook. Oh, <laughs> that's our, our good old uh, trusted friend. Yeah. That's amazing. That's such a, that's amazing. I love hearing those kind of stories. So in where you, what you do and, and how you do it, does representation matter in your opinion? Does representation matter? Yes, definitely. I mean, it matters 
there are lots of ways, I guess, the question could be interpreted. Does having good representation matter? So having good lawyers represent you, that matters. Does having, because it can alter the outcome, good defense lawyers can alter the outcome of a case. I do mean more specifically. In terms of diversity. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, that definitely matters. Diversity matters in any profession, in any job, because when you have people from diverse backgrounds, they bring a fresh new approach to things. It's innovative. It's They look at things in a way that others may not have looked at. And it definitely matters. You have juries which are mixed and you can appeal to a, a mixed jury if you have, you know, somebody from a, a BAME background. They can appeal yes. to it. They have a, a certain appeal to a jury. It matters on so many levels. It matters from even a business perspective for chambers and, and solicitors firms to take on people from minority background. Because sometimes when a client walks through the door, they want to see somebody like them. They want to be, mm-hmm. they want to feel comfortable speaking to somebody like them, that this person will, you know, we have shared experiences. And so they will understand where I'm coming from. It matters. And I was going to, also going to say, I mean, it matters in the sense that when you have lawyers coming from diverse backgrounds, I mean, coming from BAME backgrounds, I personally find that they fight much harder as well. Because Okay. It, My next question was, me as a black person, would I prefer, if, let's say if I go to a court that's notoriously known to have an all-white jury, or yeah. knowing what we know, would I not prefer to have white barristers defending me then? Yeah, I mean, the similar logic is in a rape case. Sometimes the defendant, he wants a female representing him. And actually, I had a lot of this in counterterrorism cases where people assumed that I may not be the right advocate because if I'm visibly Muslim, then I'm effectively showing or giving the impression that my client is just so such a hardcore sort of radical that he'll only have other Muslims representing him. And so sometimes there have been cases where they decide to, to do exactly Exactly that go for and they literally asked for like a white Jewish barrister so that does happen yes. and that has happened they can do that and if they think the barrister is good they can take their chances but I don't think and I again I've, I've acted in lots of terrorism and national security cases and I don't think that the juries have found against my clients because of me or and okay. there have been cases where we've been acquitted and sometimes I mean there, there have been cases where I've almost become the authority on certain topics and the jury and the judge would look to me to explain certain concepts to them so you can overcome all of those things and build a relationship wow. with the jury jury advocacy is a, is a very different ballgame because you're talking to an audience that can't talk back to you and so you have the use certain tools certain techniques to build a rapport build a, a relationship with the jury so that they trust you I think that's the main thing. And even if they may set out, if you're, let's say, I did a trial, I was partly sort of co-opted into this trial, it was the July the 7th bombings. Wow. Yeah, so we had, and this was very... You've been in the game for a long time, you don't, I'm going to... Just don't don't calculate my age. Thank you, thank you. Let's stop there. Let's not go get into any any further discussions about time. Case closed. Yeah, but so (laughs) we can revive that later on. So it was July the 7th bombing, and there were three defendants there who were accused of being part of the conspiracy to cause explosions. And as we know, there were explosions in the underground. And so the ones that were directly involved obviously died. And these guys were said to be part of this conspiracy where they themselves didn't go on the trains, but they were part of it. They knew what was going on and they assisted in it. And so, and this was an all white jury, if I remember correctly, the first trial, and it was at Kingston Crown Court. And so Kingston, I guess it's 
Middle England. So the jury pool you get from there is very white, very middle class. And in the first trial, the jury, and so I was the what, a junior barrister in, in that trial. And there was another Muslim barrister as well on that trial. So the first, the verdict on the first trial, they were hung jury, so they couldn't make a decision. And on the second one, they mm. came back with a not guilty verdict. So it, wow. I don't think it matters. I think as an advocate, when you go in, your job effectively is to cloak your client with a veneer of respectability. And okay. irrespective of what race, colour, gender you are, if you can do that, then your client has a good chance of doing well in the trial. So people can say, and, and sometimes people used to say this to me when I was very junior and I was yes. at another different chambers, you know, and I sort of draw the distinction because where I am currently, the clerks are very good. But in the previous set of okay. chambers, they would say, well, I mean, sometimes they would say it, but a lot of the time it was just, it was more insidious. You know, ra- racism, sexism, Islam, it's all insidious. You fully don't mm. kind of can't, you know something's going on there and it's not as tangible as, as it would be if you're walking down the street and somebody shouted out a racist slur. And so, you know, my clerks would say, oh, well, this is an East End villain. Not sure if you'd get on with him. Then it was, oh, well, he's a young black gangbanger. I'm not sure you'd get on with him. And then they'd do it, well, you know. You just say gangbanger. Yes. At least you have some slang. You're not an op. You learn it on the job. And then we ha- I had it with you know terrorism cases. Well, you know, they may not want you. And so it's not they may not want me. It's because my clerks didn't want me to push me for these cases. And okay. also because it's this, whether it's unconscious bias or just blatant racism, whichever it is, I mean, that is why they didn't push me for certain cases. So it seemed like I fit into no category. But in fact, I've represented all of those categories and all of my clients love me. And I always get good results for them. And I fight much harder than most other people. Because if they've if they've appointed me as the representative, you know I like yes. to speak. I make sure they're heard. <laughs> Is it, do you find your job quite tiring as a defence barrister, or, or you really do genuinely enjoy it? I do enjoy it. When you're young, I mean, the tiring aspect is when you're starting off and you're quite junior, you've got to do shorter trials. You've got to run around between courts. It's quite hard. It's quite tough. Okay. It's very hard going. It's grueling. And when you're in the middle of a trial, you can't stop. It's not a nine to five. You clock off. You know, you've got to prepare overnight, in the evening, whatever it is, on the weekends for your next sort of next day's work. So if you're cross-examining, you've got to prep for that. If you've got legal arguments. So you're constantly in the middle of a trial is just non-stop and it can be quite grueling and yeah it can be quite tough so but I do enjoy it yeah Karen I say this with the most respect possible I hope I never need your services I always say it to my clients I hope I never see you again in the (laughs) (laughs) exactly of course well you're not just an, an amazing barrister you are also you're into the fashion, aren't you? So that's a, I think that's where like you, can, yeah. our paths can meet in, in that location, it seems. So what, what? tell me, what's that about? Well, kindred spirits, when we do when it comes to fashion, because of the work I do, and as you were saying, it can be quite stressful and quite hard-hitting. And I found I was spending yeah. a lot of time at Belmarsh High Security Prison seeing clients. That's where okay. they, they put a lot of the terrorist suspects. And so I spent a lot of time there and I thought, you know, there's got to be a little bit more to life. I need some glamour in my life. So I set up a platform called Modest Fashion Festival. And we had a huge fashion show, which was sponsored by Bentley and Charlotte Tilbury. And it did, yeah, and it did, it did really well. We had in terms of global coverage, we got 1.65 billion in terms of audience size. So, yeah, it oh, kind wow. of spiraled into something quite huge. 
Yeah, but it was focused on modest fashion festival. So we were saying that modest fashion festival and modest fashion is something that should become mainstream. And so okay. we're an industry, you know, Muslim women have X amount of spending power and we occupy this percentage of the market. So it's about time designers paid attention and created dresses, couture dresses for us to perhaps be able to purchase. And so that, that was okay. the message behind it. And, and we flew over Halima Aden for the show. So Halima's oh, uh, wow. the first hijabi supermodel. And it's just fantastic. Wow. Okay. It's not, it really is nonstop for you, isn't it? It really, really is nonstop for you. <laughs> what, non-stop um, I feel like, uh, no, 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 nonstop <laughs> and working and nonstop being awesome. I've, I'm just really, really, I'm like thankful to have you on, really. Oh, I'm, I'm left in awe. And it's very rare I'm left in awe, if I'm honest with you. I'm, I'm like, ah, uh, all these people are just cogs in the system anyway. But I'm glad that the legal system in the UK has someone like you in there. Oh, so, thank we're, you. Uh, very kind. Very, I, very happy. I'm very honoured to be on your platform. No, thank you. Thank Especially you for me. because it's called the Malcolm Effect. I grew up, I have to say, actually, I grew up, I was more into Martin Luther King when I was younger. And I then made the transition to Malcolm. So I as, as we all do. As we all, as we do. all do. We start off <laughs> calmer yeah, and then we get angrier. <laughs> but yeah, it's, no, it's, it's misunderstood. I think it's very misunderstood by some. Oh, hundred yeah. percent. My first episode of this podcast actually when I tell my story was that in school we were taught this, which I later discover and, and believe is a false dichotomy that, you know, my MLK is the peaceful loving guy and, yeah. and Malcolm X was like the terrorist. Yeah. like terrorist-like figure but when you later on you realize that's not the case they just had different approaches to solve the same issue yeah. so yeah and and again you know there's many there's, there's many ways you can solve an issue or many ways you can have approach an issue isn't it yeah yeah Definitely. No, absolutely absolutely but brilliant this has been an amazing conversation guys you are listening to the malcolm effect with mamadou i will post sultana's oh maybe i won't actually i don't know if it's confidential i will speak off there about posting on social media and stuff but yeah this is the malcolm effect with mamadou please like comment subscribe whether you're listening to it on apple Podcasts, spotify or youtube Drop a like, comment, subscribe. Put a rating there as well. Let's get my views up. Take care. Until yeah, next time. get get the ratings up, please. I need to outdo Howard <laughs> and, and Umran. <laughs> exactly. Right, peace out, guys. Take care.